Welcome back, everybody. Today, I'm excited to uh, talk to Michael Laflemme, who is the author of a book about Atlantis. And I don't know the title of the book. Can you go ahead and tell us the title of the book, by the way? Sure. It's called uh, Visions of Atlantis, Reclaiming Our Lost Ancient Legacy. All right. And this is actually a topic I'm very excited about because not only does it blend my love of not only legend and history, but the potential for uh, where those two meet up and sure. uh, I guess, but can we find an actual truth there? <laughs> so I'm very excited about this today. Uh, I am your host, Clark. We also are joined by Seth and Lancia. We're glad to have you guys here. And Michael, go ahead and tell us, um, I guess, give us a breakdown first off on, uh, I guess, a brief synopsis of the book. And then we're going to try to get into some of the uh, like some of the nitty gritty of the history and the theories and then where they meet and where the truth lies, maybe possibly in uh, what's effing weird with Atlantis. <laughs> yeah, what what isn't effing weird? Um, well, thank you. First of all, um, I really appreciate it. And yeah, you know, this was a book that took me probably seven years to research and write. And, and what I wanted to do was really write a book for this generation that incorporated all of not just the most recent archaeological and, you know, historical, cultural, oceanographic discoveries, but that also included things that a lot of people would consider, I guess, effing weird, like remote viewing, hypnagogic trances, channeled messages, clairaudient impressions of this time, and see where the esoteric information matched with verifiable evidence. And then using a kind of historical timeline where the book is structured kind of like how did people from, say, ancient Greece to the present, how did they all interpret the story and how did the story actually inform certain events that took place in the world? Um, and in doing so, I learned a lot myself, you know, because I was quite skeptical as a you know, quite conventional history professor when I started writing this. And then now, you know, here I am uh, quite convinced of it, not just its reality, but of the absolute powers of the mind, which um, to me are undeniable after my research. And, and so that was kind of how the book uh, emerged and how it's structured. And yeah, I guess we could start with you know, any open question you have about um, the topic, like, you know, and it's interesting because you referred to it as most people do as the myth of Atlantis. Um, and language is so important with this topic because, you know, the Greeks have a word for myth and the Greeks have a word for story. And Plato specifically and explicitly says this is not a myth. This is a historically true account, as strange as it sounds, you know, so there was a little bit of he basically says, look, Socrates, this is, you know, the character of Critias in his dialogue says, 
listen, Socrates, this is effing weird, but every word of it is true. And it's vouched for by Solon, the wisest of the seven sages, who was a real historical character who lived around the 6th century BC. And I always tell people, um, you say it's a myth, not you, to pick on you, but look at the original source, one of the most original sources, not the first source, but one of the most explicit ancient sources. And he starts the dialogue specifically saying, this is not a myth. This is a historically true story. And I think it's interesting because one of the main reasons people put it in the myth category is the timeline, because he's describing a civilization that he says ended 9,000 years before the time of Solon, which puts us around 9,600 BC, which mainstream historians say was basically a dead zone. But I find that time very interesting in light of recent discoveries, because how did Plato, through way of Solon, through way of priests in Egypt, who told Solon that story, that's quite a lucky guess, because we now know that 9600 BC is basically when the Younger Dryas period ended, likely due to a cataclysm, and the modern age began. So if there was indeed a cataclysm that destroyed this civilization, that's a very lucky guess. And I think it lends more credibility to his claim off the bat than it does to, oh, like many people say, he added a zero or it's just a arbitrarily ancient date that was, you know, thrown in there to add mystique to the story. Um, I actually see no evidence of that. And I, through my research, find quite overwhelming evidence that this story is not just true, but stranger than even I could imagine. <laughs> so that's my, there's my opening, opening statement. You may now take it wherever you want. So, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> Seth, did you have any questions or I, I've got a couple, but. Um, no, you go ahead first. I, I, I want to. Yeah, I was going to go with, uh, yeah, starting it off with saying the myth of Atlantis. Yeah. I think that's what's become the common vernacular of like, we just consider it to be the legend or the myth of yes. Atlantis. But um, also backing it up to that age, um, it's very interesting that you pinpoint it to that because, um, and, and I am not like, uh, Seth even knows my, my, uh, my historical knowledge, I'm a military history major. Like, that's my forte. That's what I do is tactics, technology, things like that. Ancient history is more of a uh, fun thing for me um, to study, but I'm also very interested in it. Um, uh, but also part of that is ancient Egyptian history, and we know that possibly the Sphinx, we know that, you know, um, that it goes back to, like, its base actually is probably 10,000 years old actually so and we know that through weathering and things like that right um, and not to cut you off but, well well that uh, maybe we could talk about it um uh in more length but um that that's absolutely um i believe a, a very important part of the story and i and i would tend to agree with you um based on the work of 
not just the people you mentioned, like Robert Schock with the water erosion, um, but also um, a person that I became friends with and now is, I consider, like a very good friend, um, a guy named Rob Nyland, who was a sculptor who went to Giza and not just studied the Sphinx in person, but with Robert Schock, actually, but um, discovered, actually, I think a very credible case that the original face, which would very likely have been a lioness, the goddess Mehit, was recarved in dynastic times under the, you know, first, one of the first dynasties in Egypt. And he found very compelling evidence from the pyramid text to suggest that somebody had left a cryptic note to talk about how this lunar cult, this female cult was basically overturned by King Unas in, you know, the 3600, uh, 3600s in, in ancient Egypt. And he proves it quite compellingly through his actual physical um, scale model that he built. And he shows that the back of the neck of the lioness is still present. And that's how you can explain why the head is absolutely disproportionate. And everything the Egyptians did was artistically beautiful and proportionate. And um, yeah, and I include that in the book because um, in my own research, the Sphinx was even older than really, I think, anything on the Giza Plateau. And, you know, I subscribe to, I, I subscribe from, from my research to the idea that the entire you know, megalithic development of the Giza Plateau did not occur in dynastic Egyptian times. Um, and I can talk about why, but that it actually was the result of a collaborative effort between people that were leaving Atlantis 10,500 BC and that worked in conjunction with the Egyptians who were native there and the Nubians um, to reboot the civilization. And I would argue there's much more evidence of that than these were all things. Now, some of them, I think, could be linked to dynastic times, but that explains why the later pyramids counterintuitively are less advanced than the original ones. And how many cultures do you know where buildings go backwards in terms of advancement? It doesn't really yeah. make sense um, that the machining gets worse as time goes on. It actually supports the idea that the original buildings, the oldest ones, were built by a different civilization. Um, so that's that's interesting that um, you bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, I agree with that. And it's it's a it's an, actually an amazing lead into what I'm going to be talking about uh, in our next episode. But I'm not going to spoil anything on that. Um, but it's basically a speeding up of collapses of um, of ages, if you think about that. So, um, <clears throat> so I, I will be talking about in the future about the collapse of the Bronze Age, and that's a collapse that takes place in less than two thousand years, versus what you're talking about. That and that's why I, I find it so fascinating that we're talking about ten thousand to about twenty hundred BC. Um, of possibly like this civilization existing. Do you agree with that kind of timeline of that being? Because 
I think people, you know, historians try to agree on like 2800, 2900 BC being like the old kingdom Egypt. Um, do you think Atlantis had an influence before that? Like, is it that long? Do you think it was actually it's much longer? Do you think Cataclysm actually, you think it's so you think it's like, like even before 10,000 BC? Yeah, I would put that date back at least to 55,000 BC. Okay, so you have like a very long time, and then yes, Cataclysm basically resets resets the whole uh, the whole like system basically. Right. Well, from what I gathered, um, and again, this is difficult to. It's harder to prove the first two, um, if you want to call them semi-local destructions of the culture of Atlantis, I guess I could tell you, you know, the final, see, this is what's so difficult about this subject and why um, it's so important to have these kinds of long form debates is because, you know, in my investigation, um, I came to the conclusion that there were at least three destructions of this civilization and you know if you go back let's say to just to take one example of you know one of the most compelling and accurate in all other respects in terms of medical diagnoses finding missing persons finding oil deposits the accuracy of a person like Edgar Casey is something like 99 percent so he was 99 percent accurate on every of the 15,000 readings he gave in a trance from his couch on solving medical problems, remote viewing things, um, the most documented clairvoyant ever. And he gave 500 readings on Atlantis, or that touched on Atlantis, um, and were sometimes wrapped up in past life readings and things like this. And in his description, you know, it used to be before 50,000 722 BC, he gives that specific date for the first destruction, he says it was an enormous continent that basically had its final boundaries between, let's say, the present-day Caribbean, extending north to almost past the Azores, up to the coast of Spain. So when people hear that, they go, well, that's ridiculous because the Atlantic Ocean is just this vast gulf now. And I always tell people, if you can find this map, it's an excellent map. I think it's called The Floors of the Ocean. And it's from the 50s or 60s by um, Maurice Ewing, E-W-I-N-G. And I have it on my website, actually, on the top heading um, as a kind of clue. Because if you look at the Atlantic Ocean drained, or you look at a map of the globe with all the oceans drained, showing the contours of all the Earth's ocean floors, you actually do see an enormous sunken continent that's the bottom contour of not just the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, but like three-quarters of the Atlantic Ocean. And so that's what he was talking about. He's saying that used to be above water 50,000 years ago. And... We can get into this maybe a little bit more later, but he says, look, there were three cataclysms. The first one 
fractured that continent into five huge islands. The second one, which happened 20,000 years later almost, fractured it into three smaller islands that were still large, probably like the size of Spain. And that destruction was the second one. And so by the time Plato's story comes around, that's the culture he's describing, is the final iteration, where it's three islands off the coast of Portugal that formed an archipelago that were a military empire that was invading the Mediterranean in Plato's account. But if you go back, you see that this, according to Edgar Casey and other people that I studied who, strangely, their clairvoyant accounts matched his almost identically and they never communicated, this was really the default state of humanity for nearly 50,000 years. And for much of this time, these people had harnessed technology that superseded our technology currently and basically would have appeared if we had gone back, say, to the height of it, which I would place somewhere around 11,000 BC, would have looked like you're in the movie The Fifth Element or Star Wars or something akin to that. So, um, you know, it's, it's a long answer, but I thought that's important to clear up that you know, this wasn't just the story Plato told. And, and that's why I thought it was so important to include the clairvoyant evidence, because Plato doesn't talk about the history of this culture. He just says, look, in 9600 BC, there was this island off the coast of the Straits of Gibraltar that had a circular city. And he's basically describing, you know, Bronze Age, or he's using Bronze Age language to describe like you know they fought with chariots and they sailed in ships but they had these very sophisticated you know megalithic type cities that were covered in ornate you know metals and things like this but plato never describes the accounts that a lot of people today describe which is well they had flying machines they had crystal technology they had basically you know star wars technology and so i was really interested in figuring out well where did these stories come from of Atlantis being this super high tech society? Because I understand when Plato or critics say, well, that's just some new age BS because that's not in the Plato's account. Plato's saying they sailed in triremes and they fought with chariots and nothing special. Until I started to discover that from certain clairvoyant accounts I got, that actually described how the culture went from this super advanced technological culture in the final thousand years, the ones Plato would have been describing, how because the leadership had basically gone into a full, basically a transhumanist agenda and just divorced themselves from the common people on the final, you know, three islands, that the average person had actually lost touch with the advanced technology and had reverted much like we would um, to things that they could build themselves and and basically started branching off and trying to you know take over other parts of the world because you know much the same way that the Europeans were you know impelled in the 15th century to 
you know, not discover the new world for sightseeing, but because Europe was broke and they needed to enrich their empire. And so I think that's an important part because I totally understand when people say, look, this is all BS because show me where Plato says they were flying around in the Millennium Falcon. And I say, well, you have to go to clairvoyant sources for that. And, you know, there's actually quite a lot of, I would argue, even evidence in, you know, Sanskrit texts and Egyptian texts um, and even the Bible. And that's another story of, um, you know, what you would call Balix or Vimanas or flying machines that we cannot account for. Um, but that makes sense if this highly advanced science, which Edgar Casey and many other clairvoyants um, detail at length what was in play, you know, which had a very different view of the natural world than we have. It wasn't based on Newtonian physics or Einsteinian relativity. It was a much more um, accurate representation of how physics really works. And so they were able to do things like levitate huge stones or create craft that could travel in the water and the air. And, um, you know, it wasn't magic. It was just a different scientific you know, paradigm that we probably came closest to during the height of, say, Nikola Tesla's career. Um, but, of course, that was, you know, suppressed, and we went into a, you know, strictly, basically 19th century um, internal combustion route instead of the, you know, Wardenclyffe Tower, wireless energy for everybody, hydroelectric power type dream that he had. And so I think when people say, well, how come we don't have that? It's like, well, we did, but the powers that be you know, saw that they could make a buck and so that it, information was, you know, not really adopted. Um, I have a question because it's, it's somewhat related, but it's also, so you've been, you mentioned a lot about um, clairvoyance and I was wondering if you personally have had any clairvoyant uh, experiences or if you're involved, um, I guess, in it psychically at all. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I, I am not a clairvoyant, no, and I've actually never had a past life reading myself. You know, I don't want to know. I'm afraid. I'm afraid I might have been a bad, bad person. I don't know. Um, but I think um, I'll be honest with you. The a lot of the information um, that got me into this, I really can't explain you know, what what caused my interest in this besides a kind of, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, download or some sort of strange suggestion. But um, I didn't approach this the way I've approached other things that I've written. Like, oh, this is a um, topic that needs to be addressed for the historical community or anything like that. I was actually just sitting in a park and I I don't really know how to explain it. It's kind of personal, it's very strange, but I started to, I don't know, I guess be guided towards the subject and became almost kind of weirdly um, obsessed with it. And it started to actually affect um, my life 
like my friendships because I just became obsessed with solving this question for seven years. And um, it, I didn't feel like that went away until I actually published the book in December. It was very, very strange. And I'm not saying that just because this is a show about effing weird things. That's a true story. Um, so maybe there was some sort of semi-channeled book. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't um, start automatic writing. I never went into it. Yeah. And I never had a dream, honestly. I'm like uh, the last person to ask that question to because I never had a dream of being in Atlantis or anything. But I can tell you that I certainly didn't write it myself. Um, I physically wrote the book. I sat and typed it. But there were certain sources that like found me that that there's no way yeah. I could have made a certain <laughs> connection on right. this chapter or that chapter or really even put the book together I think without somebody you know coming through the the veil or whatever and kind of helping yeah so that's all I can yeah when mm. oh sorry yeah so that's all I can say about that is I, I, I guess there was some sort of esoteric dimension to it um but not in a, a way i could really articulate you know yeah yeah when seth uh told me that they had somebody who had written a book on atlantis and was very interested in that and uh channelings and such i got very <laughs> i was very excited because i've only had um i guess one personal experience that kind of relates to atlantis was i really yeah so i'm not i used to do like a lot of psychic readings and like tarot readings and i've kind of put that on the back burner as i've been trying to rebuild my foundations for that because um i just kind of hit the ground running when i started and i didn't really have many strong foundations and i ran into some issues because of that so i'm trying to like restart over a little bit but back when i was doing that actively one of the people I ended up doing reading for uh, was somebody who um, who was very <laughs> was very also very psychic, and it turned out that we had had a few past lives together. And I don't know how to like really explain uh, meeting them apart from like it's kind of like going like feeling like this energy of home in a way. Like I don't know how to explain it. It's just like meeting another part of yourself almost it was just very strange um but we were talking about like different past lives and we would both like describe um we'd both describe like an accuracy different parts of visions that we both had about uh, the past life so i would say some details and they would say some details and it would be accurate and line up um but one of the ones well, that's yeah, one of the ones that we discussed was what we believed to be Atlantis, where what we saw was this white, almost, it's not wasn't it's not really a room, because it's open, like, it's open air, um, but there was mm -hmm. a dome ceiling with pillars along the sides, and it was a circle, and I don't remember, something was in the middle, because everybody was walking around the center. Really? Um, and it was, yeah, and it was kind of like... Um, 
I don't know if it was like a conjunction area where you like you're going around the center and then you go off into the other two sides, kind of like a roundabout almost. Um, because I remember and we were wearing like white, not like togas, but it was kind of like in that Greek fashion ish a little bit. Um, but Did I was like, a we're... turban on a turban. Um, it was a long time. I'm trying to remember because we had talked about it a long time ago. I think he might have had something on it. I don't remember because I remember him having black curls. Um, he said that I had some sort of like headdress on, but I'm not sure if there was a turban or not. I don't. Yeah, that's that's very interesting the way you described, um, that room because it reminds me of the central power station that Edgar Casey explicitly describes, you know, and I have a whole chapter on that where he says, you know, at one point, because of course, you know, a lot can change in 50,000 years. If you want to, you know, use that as like a basic timeline for the civilization. Um, <laughs> he said, you know, at one point, um, at least as late as, 30,000 BC, um, the whole civilization was powered by this thing called the Tuoi crystal. Mm-hmm. And it was housed in a giant domed observatory type building that a group of people could, you know, walk around and, you know, visit. Um, now, I don't know if that's exactly what you're talking about. Maybe there were many other domed buildings, but that's interesting that. You know, and it's interesting, too, that you said, you know, you had a headdress and a toga because from other clairvoyant visions that I investigated, um, that does seem to be, you know, the typical attire of people at that time in, in certain parts of the civilization. So I think it's interesting. And I think it's like, you know, Edgar Casey himself said that everyone alive in the 20th century, particularly in the United States, almost without exception, had most of their past lives in Atlantis. Yeah. And that's such a controversial topic because, you know, I don't really see people get, and same with Egypt as well, um, because from just from doing years of research, you know, on other people who give past life regressions like Dolores Cannon and many other people who, who are very legitimate, trained regression therapists, it seems like the majority of people alive today in this, you know, batch of, if you want to call it reincarnated soul groups, that we really are all coming from Atlantis and then the later Egyptian experience, and that we are playing that same drama out right now. And that's why people get so bent out of shape when you say something about that time period. And they have, you know, they they come at you. Whereas, Nobody really gets that bent out of shape about how you interpret medieval history or how you interpret, say, I don't know, ancient Rome or something. It's like who built the pyramids is a very heated conversation. And yet most people debating it are not ethnically in this life Egyptian, you know, Um, same with Atlantis. Like if it's just a myth, why do people freak out when Hancock and other people suggest it's real, you know? Why does National Geographic go crazy 
you know, when people suggest it could have existed. Um, I think it's because it's a very personal subject that, like you said, you and your friend, you know, believe to have lived there. And I, I think absolutely. I think everybody listening to this remembers that time if they really think back far enough, you know? Yeah. We've also discussed, um, like, the cataclysm. Um, I believe it, it was the last one, but uh, I guess from the way that we've interpreted it or believed it to be, and again, like, you know, I can't say, like, this is truth, you know, because it's just what we believe or whatever. But um, from what we've believed to happen was that there is a lot of um, there's basically kind of like a spiritual hierarchy, and um, and we believe at the time that uh, because over time, you know, a lot of uh, things change spiritually as well as the rules, because there's rules when it comes to spirituality, the rules change as well. And so at that time, there was this, um, there's basically this balance of power. Like, I don't know if you've heard of the Anunnaki, of um, but there is this like tug of war for power uh, is what we believed and the um, and Atlantis was supposed to be kind of a an information center and it was kind of supposed to be like a place that was supposed to help better earth because earth is considered one of the lower realms right um, and you know and not- when the oh I'm sorry go oh, ahead when the balance of oh, no, <laughs> when the balance of power shifted then uh, it was time for the people who had come to Atlantis for that purpose to leave Atlantis. And I do believe that there were some people who were essentially like left behind. Mm. I don't know if that was um, intentional on their part or unintentional. But that is just kind of our take on what had happened. Well, that that's absolutely... I mean, that's a fascinating way to look at it because it reminds me of... Um, one of the channelers that that lines up directly with what you just said would be um, Phyllis Schlemmer, who was a really active channeler in the 70s and who actually inspired the Star Trek franchise. Gene Roddenberry said that it was her channelings of extraterrestrials and the Federation and things like this where he got all of his ideas for the, for the franchise. And, you know, she wrote a book that you would be really interested in, I think, based on what you just said, called The Only Planet of Choice. And it's a bunch of, it's a series of channelings that she gave during the 70s and 80s. And then the book came out in the early 90s. And I cite that because her version of Atlantis is exactly what you said that it was basically an information center and an experiment. She calls it the Altian experiment. And she basically says that advanced extraterrestrial beings, you know, like the Elohim or the Anunnaki, whatever you want to call these people, came to Earth in a very distant time, set up these different centers, and were involved in genetic manipulation of pre-existing humanoid populations, And yeah, that it basically was, you know, what you said. And that over time, this experiment, which she calls the Altian experiment, failed, was destroyed. And then parts of the story 
were preserved. And in her account, she says Socrates was actually the one who channeled the story to Plato in a kind of Edgar Casey type trance. She added that little detail, which I thought was interesting. Um, but to your point, you know, it's it's always been the hardest thing. And I, I only put about a short chapter in the book on the Anunnaki or, you know, extraterrestrial presence um, as pertains to this. But it's a very powerful chapter because it is a topic that you really can't avoid with this subject. And as much as I, you know, look at this story as mainly a human story um, and a story of humans who had become so advanced as to be nearly indistinguishable from, say, extraterrestrials or gods or, you know, whatever you want to call them, um, most of the channelers that I investigated absolutely point to an extraterrestrial intervention. And some of them give specific types of beings that would have been doing this and regions of the galaxy that they came from. Um, but I think it's kind of like, much like today, you know, like, I don't think it's crazy to think that extraterrestrials have been engaged with global governance for some time. I don't think that's, I mean, the head of Israeli, you know, uh, what was it? I forget the technical term, but it was a very reputable high-ranking officer. He said that on the record, he said, we have been engaged, all the world's governments, with an extraterrestrial federation of beings that does exist. And, you know, but it, does it mean that every single aspect of history is determined by, you know, Draco, you know, reptilian overlords? Probably not. Could they be influencing certain politicians? Possibly. Um, and I think it's the same with this story. Like, these beings certainly came, visited, interacted, perhaps even, you know, left genetic traces. But I think at certain times they left, or I think at certain times perhaps they were themselves, you know, defeated or moved away. And, you know, humanity, which, again, you know, what is a human being? Um, is it just a natural selection hominid or is it genetically manipulated? I think there's quite compelling evidence to suggest that we weren't manipulated on some level by higher beings. Um, yeah, and then Atlantis was this kind of, exactly as you said, this information center, this testing ground, this, you know, original crystallization of civilization, and that they picked that part of the Earth to start it, but that it also, you know, interacted with other um cultures both high and low just like today we have people living in the amazon who've never seen a cell phone and we have you know the burj khalifa in in dubai and jets and the two coexist in the same timeline you know so i always think it's it's good to really just look at it like it's not that different from the 21st century it's just they were using basically thousands of more years in the future on a tesla type trajectory, you know, um, Nikola Tesla type trajectory. Um, if you want to look at like an analog to something we have today. Yeah. And I can agree. 
I'm sorry, I have to I have to get going here. But yeah, I I definitely can agree with that. I think um there are some like rules in place on how much uh, the extraterrestrials can um influence, but of course, you know, there're going to be people who break rules because free will, right? Sure. Um but, but yeah, it was nice talking with you all. I have to get going. Yeah, no, thank you so much. We'll see you later. Appreciate it. Thanks for swinging by. Yeah, I'll see you guys later. It was thank you for having me. And Mike, you'll have to send me the some of those books. And Clark, I'll have to uh, talk to you more later. We'll definitely catch up. Yeah, absolutely. All right, sounds good. You guys have a good All night. Right. Take you care. Too. Well, there is a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Um, one of the things you were talking about early on, uh, when with the Atlantic maps, the the uh way down let's see the four maps yeah that that's uh this is a rabbit hole in and of itself like i'm looking at all the different types of scans old maps Ooh. new maps I'm not, and... i don't even need to look at the bottom of the ocean to know if you think about it if you go from florida to bermuda to the azores exactly. uh mm -hmm. to spain actually i know exactly what he's talking about like you can see that there's still peaks there's still islands there people don't mm -hmm. people think it's just a straight shot from right europe to like america Exactly. And it's not like that, obviously. There's an underridge mountain range, and there is actually still uh, islands that are, <laughs> like, peaking. So it's like, you know, so that's the first thing. Yeah, and you know, what's, what's absolutely crazy is, um, I wish, I have to bring a graphic next time, but that kid, um, Frederick Oliver, who... Uh, channeled a book called A Dweller on Two Planets. Now think about this. He wrote this book in 1886. And he claimed this was a channeled account of somebody else's past life in the year 11,160 BC, living on the island of Poside in the Atlantean Empire. And he draws a sketch of what this island looked like. Now, if you superimpose that sketch from 1886 over the top of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge at Dolphin Ridge, where the Azores are, it's a triangular kind of like fin-shaped uh, contour. It's exactly correct. And there was no detailed contour map of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge until 1950. So that alone is shocking to me. And really, where he, he's showing the high point of the Poseidian landmass is where Mount Pico in the Azores is today. And again, this was a kid who was 17 years old, clairvoyant, living in Eureka, California during the Wild West. And in that account, he's describing basically the star wars franchise he's saying i'm on a flying ship i'm speaking to a princess on a holographic handheld communicator you know and it's like where do these ideas come from and then he draws a sketch of the bottom of the mid-atlantic ridge and says this is where i used to live and that's exactly where plato said it would have been so when people tell me all this crazy shit about it's in Mauritania. It's the Rashad structure. It's this. It's that. It's like, let's focus, first of all, on where Plato said it was. You know, and if I had a dollar 
for every person that I got an email the other day, guy telling me that the pillars of Hercules were really in the Baltic Sea, you know, and I'm like, why don't we just put them in Dayton, Ohio? You know, like, that's just this, like, let's look at what Plato said. Let's take it at face value and let's see if there's evidence. And there is, there's overwhelming evidence. You know, and the people in the Azores, you don't have to convince them. They believe that they used to be the Atlantean landmass, you know. So I think it's um, really interesting that people will go through these, like, logical hoops because they see a shiny object like the Rishat structure or they see, you know, uh, some... You you mentioned you just mentioned it a second ago. What was the one, what's the one in Africa that's the circular eye? That's it. The eye in the of middle the of the Sahara. Sahara. That the eye of the Sahara. Right, right. And again, I'm not saying I know for a fact what the eye of the Sahara is. I know Randall Carlson thinks it's a natural formation. I know Jimmy Corsetti has banked his entire career on it is Atlantis. <laughs> you know, he's a he's like. A, He's like wearing those new sh- I, I, every now and then he'll upload something on Instagram. He's like in a new three piece suit. I'm like, okay. No, and he's got a, you know, whole career staked on on going on Rogue and saying I found Atlantis. And I always tell people, let's just presume. Let's just pre- pretend that that is a scale recreation of the city Plato described. It doesn't fit the size, but let's just say that that's that's true. Okay? That's still not Atlantis. Because Plato didn't say Atlantis was a circular city. He says in this massive island was a circular city. And this island was part of an archipelago that had dominion over parts of North America, which he cites basically as the far continent that lies across the true sea, and all of the Mediterranean from Spain to Italy, to North Africa, to Egypt. So it's like, when Jimmy Corsair says, I found Atlantis, it's like, what are you talking about, bro? Like, you found a structure that's very weird, that could be man-made, could be natural, but even if it were man-made, it's not where Plato said it was supposed to be, but maybe it's a recreation, just like, we have New York and London. It doesn't mean that two aren't connected culturally. It's just, it's not Atlantis. Hey, I, 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 got a Memf- I got a Memphis over here. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Mexico, Mexico City was originally designed in way. Correct. Not Shillong. Correct. Correct. And, you know, and it's quite interesting because if you look at the history of the Aztecs, well, what does Azteca mean? It actually, in their own language, means the people from Aztlan. So, again, it's like, where, where is Aztlan? It's actually, it's, it's a derivative of Atlan. And if you look at the Aztec god Atlanteotl, it's a man holding the sky on his shoulder, just like the Greek god Atlas. And again, we're supposed to believe that these are coincidences, that you have a Greek god Atlas thousands of miles away in a completely different culture that we're told was never in contact with the Americas. 
And then you have similar word, Atlanteotl, who's a god who holds up the heavens. And then you have kids from the Wild West who have never studied either of those subjects that say, specifically I cite this, that kid Frederick Oliver said, he says he's remembering this past life, and he says, Atlan, that held the world on its shoulders through its science and technology, you know? And then it starts to make sense. Like, that is a metaphorical symbol. It's not that we look at it and say, look at these stupid Greeks. They thought Atlas held the world on it, you know, Atlas shrugged and all this. But it's a symbol of this civilization that represented the highest peak of human achievement. And so they commemorated it with a man holding the world on his shoulders in the Aztec culture and in Greece. And I find that very interesting, you know? And of course, if this was indeed a much larger continent going way back, then you would have had migrations to these, you know, different geographical regions because you didn't have to cross the whole Atlantic Ocean. And again, where does that word come from? It's, it's all right there. You know, Atlas, Atlantic Ocean, Atlanteotl, Nahuatl language, the people from Aztlan. It's like pretty clear that this is all not just a series of bizarre coincidences, but that the, the chain of evidence runs all throughout the Americas and Europe. And that's why people get so bent out of shape because they go, well, we found Egyptian artifacts in, or Phoenician artifacts in Michigan. You know, we found uh, Egyptian artifacts in the Grand Canyon. This, how can this be? And it's like, well, all of these cultures, I would argue, come from Atlantis. And then they became the Iroquois. They became the dynastic Egyptians. They became the Aztecs. They became the Inca, the Maya, you see? But the nucleus was a mid-Atlantic high civilization that was broadly trading with the entire world for tens of thousands of years. That's why you see this evidence all over the goddamn place, including in parts of North Africa, which Plato said was a Atlantean colony, you know? But it's like saying, oh, I found uh, Bermuda, you know? And so that's England. It's like, no, that's an English colony, you know? It's not England. It's part of the British Empire, you know, or was. Ooh. Yeah, that's a lot, uh, you know, a lot. But I wanted to back it up for one second and not ruin anything because I think that we should actually have a part two of this. And the part oh. two of this should be an Edgar Casey episode. Well, that would be great. Really? I've wanted to do it. I've wanted to do an Edgar Casey episode for the longest time. That would be Ooh, Would you like to time. join us, Michael? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so if, you, if you would oblige us on that, I would be very honored. Um, but this has been fun from the history perspective of it. But yeah, I would like to dive deep into an Edgar Casey episode. So. Yeah, it's really strange. It's really strange. And honestly, you know, his Atlantis readings are strange, but. Just him in general is is such a fascinating uh, case study, you know. I didn't want to interrupt Lancia when she was talking. Um, I didn't want to interrupt her when she started talking, but I was going to say something uh, right when you were coming out of uh, something you were saying about 
time and uh, basically him going back to Atlantis and stuff like yeah. that. And uh, it's it's actually a quote for some reason that always sticks to me. And I, I'm not going to get it 100% right because I'm not looking at it right now. But yeah. um, Edgar Casey, under one of his trances, um, uh, when his secretary was writing everything for him, mm-hmm. uh, he was asked uh, in lesser words, like, what is what is the meaning of life? Yes. Things like that. And he said, he responded, time is one brief, beautiful expression. Yeah, I forget it. He was basically saying that time is like time is like a bubble. Yes, is what he was basically saying that time is like it's already happened. Everything before and after has happened, and it's like all one brief, beautiful moment. Yes, is how Edgar Cayce described time when he was asked that. Right, and he also would describe what he called the skein of time. He would use this old-fashioned word. A skein is like a, a, a spool of yarn. In, in old-fashioned English. And he would describe, basically, that every single thing, thought, action, movement of air, wind, water, was recorded, literally recorded, um, on what he called the skein of time. And that's what he was accessing, that there was basically a permanent etheric cloud of everything that has ever taken place on earth and certain people could access it. Um, and yeah, it, it's fascinating. And it really, it changed the whole way I looked at uh, reality, certainly, you know, because um, it's hard to, it's hard to refute because it's such a uh, compelling and, you know, to me, very intuitive uh, explanation for for reality much more intuitive than say conventional materialism or strictly orthodox global yeah. religion I think it's actually like a very sophisticated combination of, of all these traditions that we've just kind of you know written off as oh that's a bunch of new age Yes, um, but I don't think it is. I think it's actually how reality operates. And I think as time goes on, more and more people, um, you know, in quantum physics or in like Stanford's department of um, SRI um, or the uh, department of noetics with Dean Radin, where, I mean, they're showing that it's not a material universe that's cold and impersonal, that it responds to human intention and you know, human intention can change random number generators. And we all have some low level clairvoyance that, you know, and also it's it's a matter of as silly as this sounds. When people say, well, if that's true, then why aren't we all clairvoyant? And, you know, I think it was him that said something like this. And it's like, well, it's because we don't believe we can do it. But if we all believed we could, our levels of clairvoyance would go up demonstrably, you know. But it's just that the overarching mm-hmm. culture that we live in today um, categorically rejects that and says everything we just talked about is a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. And it's very fascinating, especially when you compare him to like any philosophers that even came before him, even in the 19th yeah. century. Because, you know, he's a 20th century right. seer. And like you have 19th century philosophers that seem more short sighted than. Right what he was putting out. So I don't know. It's just fascinating to me. Oh, it is. Um, you know, it's a guy that has 
no formal education and it was a Sunday school teacher. Uh, none. Yeah. He didn't read yeah. Plato's dialogues. He certainly didn't speak all the languages that he could channel. Um, and, you know, himself was disturbed by what he was saying because he was an Orthodox Baptist. And, you know, when, yeah, he, yeah, he wasn't, he was very humble, yeah, very humble about yeah. it. So, so I think it's it's a great topic for another day. Absolutely, I'd be more than happy. To. Yeah, I think I think we shouldn't we shouldn't spoil any more of his. Uh, no, oh, stuff. I'm excited. I'm excited because oh, we can talk. Yeah, more about we got more about the Sphinx to talk about and things like that. So. Yeah, no, I I I even might I could even maybe yeah. get my my friend on. You know, my friend Rob Nyland um, or Rob Nyland. Um, I'll yeah. even see. Yeah, I'll see if I can even get him on because um he's such a he's such a great researcher because he always keeps me you know on on check you know like he doesn't deny channeling but he always tells me michael uh you know we all had a girlfriend that lived in atlantis okay focus on what we can do but at the same time i'll show him like rob look at this and he'll be like i know you know and i say well you know people think you're crazy because you showed that the sphinx was recarved you know, just just yeah. think about that when you say not everything Edgar Casey said was true. You know, it doesn't all have to be true. It just has to lead to a coherent and compelling preponderance of evidence to me to be worthy of inclusion, you know, because what is absolutely true? You know, nothing. You know, if it were, we wouldn't be having the effing weird podcast. You know, and nobody, yeah, nobody would be interested in this because we'd we'd all agree on the truth, but it's obviously not. It's incomplete. So, um, oh, yeah, you know. I do. I have a question because back when uh, if you rewind a little bit to the Mid-Atlantic Ridge and the maps, uh, I would one thing kind of crossed my brain and I just wanted you guys opinion on it. I know that uh Within the past decade, there was a maybe it was maybe a little bit more. Maybe I'm going to say last 15 years, there was an oil surveying outfit that found a uh, rather devastating crater at the bottom of the um, uh, the Gulf of Mexico. Mm. And uh, there was a whole bunch of when that was discovered, there was a whole bunch of of the uh, theories attaching the mass extinction on the North North American continent and all, all of the huge animals that just kind of went away right. very right. suddenly. Uh, but w one thing it, it, it strikes is like, if you have a strike mm -hmm. that big that wreaks that much devastation on that section mm -hmm. of the map, and then you have a, um, a, a continent in the Atlantic somewhere, or at least the ridges at this particular mm -hmm. point, um, that would have devastating waves uh, like tsunamis and different effects, I would imagine, on that area if that was still above water. Well, it's interesting because I suppose maybe we could. Um, I've got about 15 minutes here, um, but I guess, um, you know, of the let's just take Casey's timeline. So in his timeline, um, he actually doesn't give a definite explanation of the final destruction. He put he places it around 10,500 B.C. to 10,000 B.C. So it's right around that younger Dryas impact theory. But the first two 
when the consonant broke up, to answer your question, uh, the first one, if you can believe that in 50,722 was a human-caused cataclysm, where he says basically some sort of harp or stratospheric death ray, this is his word, that a series of near space-based lasers or some sort of directed energy weapon were simultaneously fired into multiple volcanic flows by the people of the world who had met in Atlantis to determine how best to rid the world of the megafauna that were overrunning it. And he says in doing so, it unleashed basically, you know, all hell broke loose because the plan was we're going to use this weapon. We're going to cause some local volcanic eruptions and try to kill the food supply on the breeding grounds of some of these megafauna um, so we can manage these things. But it actually ended up fracturing the Earth's crust. And, you know, I mean, so that's the first. And this is a very weird, very specific reading that people, I think, understandably think is absurd. I don't. I think it's very plausible. But um, and then the second one, major one, 28,000 BC, was the main power plant, which was this enormous toy crystal, which could do all sorts of things. It could be entrained as a weapon, essentially a ground based Death Star. It could alter gravity. It could communicate with interdimensional beings, whatever you want to call them, extraterrestrials whatever but it also powered the civilization so you're talking something like you know a you know something thousands of times more powerful than any nuclear reactor and in casey's story he's actually giving the reading to the guy that did this in virginia and he says you know in 28,000 bc you were the chief technician of this operation and you overtuned the toy crystal and it actually overcharged all the substations in the island and fractured once again. Um, and then for the third one, he actually doesn't give an explanation. And so that's why I think it probably was um, a natural cataclysm, you know. Um, and, you know, Plato basically says without saying it that a comet hit the Earth, because if you recall in, I forget if it's in Critias or Timaeus, but um, when Plato's relative, distant relative, Solon, goes to Egypt to ask about the true history of the Greeks, because the Egyptians had longer records, the priest tells him, he says, you know, you have this myth of this character called Phaeton. And he says, you guys immortalize it in a myth, like a guy loses control of his dad's horses and he falls to the earth in his chariot. And that's a Greek myth that's right up there with Zeus you know, and Athena and Hera and all this. And the Egyptian priest says, well, you call it a myth, but it really signifies the declination of heavenly bodies that once upon a time come down close to the earth and burn everything up upon it. So it's like they're talking about the Younger Dryas impact theory in the story of Atlantis. And they put it at 9600 BC. And it's like, when people say this is all made up, it's like, well, how did Dr. James Kennett and all these people from major research universities in the last 15 years determine that that actually 
very likely did happen. You know, that a comet hit probably on the Carolina coast or the North Atlantic ice sheet directly. And so we don't have an impact crater per se, but there's a lot of evidence of that, you know? And, and that's what Carlson and Hancock and many other people have, have shown, I think, quite conclusively that like the scab lands were formed by that water and ice and trees and all that stuff just pouring down at some sort of incomprehensible scale, you know, a thousand foot high wave um, carrying everything in its wake. And it's like, yeah, well, how did these people writing in the fourth century BC in ancient Greece that didn't have any of these records, how did they guess this, if this is all made up? You know what I mean? Man, I would love to pick Randall Carlson's brain. Uh, those are some of my favorite. Like he did a stint with Rogan, but they were back before it was like a certain type of popular. And it was yes. like uh, long form discussions about this that I, I knew very little about these subjects. Right. That was I mean, I couldn't get enough of them. Right. Yeah. I think I remember the first time he was on and I was shocked at just that evidence that he had of physical evidence today in parts of the American Southwest and the Northwest mm -hmm. Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Like, what do they what do they call the the like the micro diamonds that they find in all uh, ice cores around diamonds. the world? Yeah. The nano diamonds. Yes. Uh, and there's like only one way it forms. Right. Yeah. And it's it's a global phenomenon. And, you know, it points. I mean, this was a major research team from the University of Santa Barbara. It wasn't a, a, a channeler or a tarot reader. And again, no offense to channelers or tarot readers. I think a lot of them are very accurate, but it's like these were mainstream people that said mm -hmm. this and they weren't even thinking about Atlantis or any of this stuff. They were just saying, look what is this and there's no way to really explain how the holocene era began you know there's really no good explanation because it wasn't a gradual warming it was a sudden flooding and dramatic redistribution of water and climate that suggests and then oh i don't know like 370 plus global flood myths yeah um yeah that thing uh i don't know myths like phaeton um myths like i don't know the comet hitting the earth that like hundreds of cultures have talked about the feathery the feathered serpent you know and again it's like it's all there it's just our own bias i've argued over and over throughout that book that that keeps us from engaging with it you know because it's scary and it could happen again. And we're arrogant in the 21st century. And we don't want to admit that we're not at the top, you know, that that having jets and rockets that can land and, you know, Twitter is not the height and apex of civilization, that we're actually just basically living out 19th century technologies that we've never really made a breakthroughs on. We've just kind of stayed on internal combustion and you know alternating current electricity since it was yeah. discovered yeah. you know 100 plus years ago and wow we have you know screens that are high resolution and the internet pretty yeah pretty much the only 
uh, breathtaking technological uh, achievement, in my opinion, would, would be like uh, uh, cutting uh, circuits down to like the nanometer. Like that's impressive. But other than that, you're right. You're right. Like like drones and all of this stuff that we have, they're all they all like tiny little motors, tiny little DC motors. Uh, they've been around forever. They're just super affordable to manufacture now. So we have a ton of this stuff all over the place. Right, right. And so, yeah, I mean, it's like, I think, uh, you know, that's a big part of it is, mm-hmm. is just not having um, the, the honesty to look at this subject and say, like, yeah, we, we have a long way to go. Because if you read these accounts, um, not just from Mega Casey, but from all the people that have talked about this high technology period of Antis, which again was like our civilization is cyclical. It wasn't always high and it, you know, it, and, and in each of the different iterations, like after the destruction, the technology came back, you know, different. Like basically the one that was the oldest when Casey said they deployed this powerful weapon, um, they were flying in basically like steampunk type gas powered vessels that weren't these super fast, like sleek UFO type things like they later had 40,000 years later. And so I think that's interesting too, because it's not just like it always comes back the same way. You know, it's like technology changes and it adapts based on needs of that culture. And, you know, maybe they didn't need to push it to the point of Star Wars at the beginning, but they also had you know, different ways to harness energy that I guess were equally devastating. So I think it's it's just it's cool to talk to you guys and and our our previous guests because and I apologize for going on and on um, monopolizing the conversation. I said I would not do that, but um, I hope it hasn't been too boring. But um, I think you know what we have to do is just have a reasonable you know open debate about this subject instead of just making fun of people that believe in it um which doesn't do anything you know because you don't make fun of something if you're confident you know i think a lot of these people are i think you saw that with backlash against hancock after his show went oh yeah that dude is the nicest guy he's just like i found this and i found this and everybody just shits on him (laughs) it's unbelievable because i think he does it so tactfully and effortlessly and it's really hard to categorically refute what he's saying and it pisses people off who have spent their whole careers um telling people that you know the egyptians built an impossibly precise building using mounds and chisels um yeah the the copper tools i know i want to say one thing because i don't want it to get like where it gets off again and i have to backtrack um i thought this was funny um entertainment so uh like you're saying like think about this for a second Mm -hmm. if atlanteans didn't have entertainment like we do like think about star trek influenced the way we did technology yes like we kind of based our modern technology based on our sci-fi like writers. Yes. So like 
going back to that, when you were saying things like, oh, they had like gas, like uh, Edgar Casey was saying they had like gas flying, like little floating things or whatever. And then it would have developed later into the, like, I wonder how long it took them to develop versus us, like right. getting to the moon, you know, our flight from 1903 right. to 1969, right. like going from flight, manned flight to the moon. Correct. <laughs> no, and, 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 I, and then, yeah. you know, just think about that. No, and that's, that's awesome that you brought that up. Cause I, I think I say that verbatim in the second to last chapter, like, we can't even conceive. And, and that's why I don't spend too much time telling people this absolutely happened and here's the proof. I just say, look, I've put all of this shit together in a way that's gonna save you 10 years of research. And these are what some people said was happening at this time. But for example, to your point, which I think is excellent, like you said, you go from Wright Brothers to Apollo mission in, you know, 66 years um could that have happened you know in the past absolutely so then how do you explain these gaps like what was going on between 50,000 BC and 28,000 i have no idea all i can tell you was what certain people who put dates on it said was going on and then i kind of piece it together just kind of logically you know, because a lot of these different channelers give different dates for whatever time they are particularly channeled. And so for me, I kind of spent years just storyboarding. Like every time a channeler would give a date, I would put that down and then describe what that person was saying. And you could see kind of a continuity, you know, but again, you know, even in, let's say between 23,000 and 20,000 BC, you're absolutely right. They could have gone through three to four different localized, you know, moon mission decline, world war decline, renaissance. I mean, just like we did in the past, you know, 3000 years ourselves. And so but what what's crazy to me, though, is that if this is true and I have reason to believe it is, then then. This gap between, say, 10,000 B.C., you know, the end of the last Ice Age, so to speak, roughly speaking, and, say, 1900, that roughly 12,000-year gap, which we think is the lead-up to civilization, might indeed be the very aberrant exception to the state humanity had always been in, which was high technology, like today or better. And that if you happen to live you in know, those times, in those 12,000s, like that was really the weird exception because of this extraordinary cataclysm, which rewrites history. Yeah, well, okay, you know, the, the whole thing that's going on right now where you know the internet's buzzing about uaps and ufos mm -hmm. and all that stuff and um and then we get all of this you know these these uh videos get, that are supposedly shot on the jets that these things are outmaneuvering by a, a quite a right. long shot and supposedly they have more that are even more impressive that hasn't even seen the light of day yet sure one of the things that is interesting is like the idea that uh 
with all these different uh, timelines of destruction of uh, an Atlantean empire, right? Uh, and and the kind this idea that there are like uh, uh, flying versus uh, sub sub water submarine um, type vehicles. Like it's like, well, what if what if it's just a a a descendants that have been uh, not even not even like what you were talking about earlier, like they were analyzing uh, megafauna from like a distance trying to figure out what they could do to wipe out and make it more manageable on the continents. Well, what if there was like a, a separatist division that were just like, we're going to create like this underwater thing because a lot of the uap reports is they they come in and out of water frequently and and that dates back uh like like world war ii like you got all these accounts of this and then the new footage it's like what if they're just like a parallel like what 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 would it look like them technologically evolving not even parallel to us they already have like a leg up right and i actually that's like nuts. and it's funny no it's fascinating because I was just watching um, uh, a Richard Dolan show presentation on some more of these, you know, UAPs that come out of the water. And, you know, he had two or three really reliable accounts from aircraft carriers from the 50s and 60s where they're like, yeah, a enormous cigar shaped object shut down all electronics on the USS Kennedy, hovered over the craft. Two discs came out of the ocean in front of the entire crew, which was later debriefed, went into the cigar, which itself then plunged into the ocean. And our and these things, and these things have like military maneuvers, like these things that we call UAPs or whatever. They're highly organized, and they're they're um they have like tactics, like high tactics. and, And I agree with you. And he, I think, seems to believe that this is possible too, which is that. Look, they don't all have to be extraterrestrial. Like, I absolutely give credit to what you said that, look, perhaps these craft, like, not all of them were lost. And even though the main power source, let's say, main station was destroyed, uh, certainly certain people in Egypt, I would argue, in 10,500 when they were doing that adventure, definitely restarted the power system i would and christopher dunn would argue that that's what the main giza power you know plant theory is yeah yeah the giza pyramid itself at one point mm-hmm. was the recreation of the power source from atlantis and you know and you know what's really interesting edgar casey you know there's that passage um in the bible where ezekiel is describing these wheels in the sky you know and Edgar Casey actually says that some of the Atlantean craft, and this is a direct quote, he says, would have appeared much as they appeared, quote, to Ezekiel when he saw them in his own times of the Bible. And so basically, Casey was saying that there were still, I'm not saying I know who these people were, but he's saying that there were beings in mechanical flying crafts during biblical times, which again, Researcher Paul Wallace and um, Mauro, I forget his last name, Biblio, one of the Vatican's premier 30-plus year translators, has said the Bible is talking about beings in flying craft. When it says the word 
Davod, we translate it as Moses asked Yahweh to show him his glory. But he says that's not what Davod means. And again, this is a very sensitive subject. But again, when you put all of this together, it, it seems that, I'm not saying God isn't real or this or that, but it seems like throughout all these texts, there is evidence of what you just said, which is that extraterrestrial, breakaway, whatever, that there's always yeah. been this like others type presence here, you know? Well, okay. What, what, what were you saying? The word, the word that was mistranslated? Well, there were three. There's Davod, D-A-V-O-D in English, Davod. and then Ruach, which is translated as Holy Spirit, which Mauro says is actually more like a fiery whirlwind. And then, um, okay, okay. of course, Elohim, which he determined cannot be translated into anything resembling um, a spiritual God, that it was more of a powerful yeah. series of rulers, you know? Yeah, Elo uh, so Elohim, I'll, I'll this because I have background in apologetics and everything. <laughs> Please, <laughs> I'll take it over here. Take it, take it from here. <laughs> so um, in the book of Elijah, um, the Elijah's protege, Elisha, mm. watches him get taken up into heaven That's right. uh, by a chariot, and it's a fiery chariot, uh, and the way it's described actually... Uh, is translated as like two circular, um, basically cyclical, I guess cyclical motions like opposite yes, of each other. That's right. But it's called a chariot because that's all they had to do right. as far as a translation right. for the time. So they call it, he's taken up into heaven by a chariot. But he's actually taken up by like a, uh, a fiery, uh, like cyclical being, I guess is what they call it. And um, that's actually how it's like roughly translated. Those uh, those bib or the biblically accurate angels. Yes, uh, just exactly yeah. the way seraphim and cherubim are actually. Mm -hmm. They're they're horrific when yeah. you actually look at them the way they're described in the Bible. They're they're not like fear not people. right. Yeah, they had to have that disclaimer. So uh, a a fiery chariot came down and took Elijah and Elisha, his protege, watched him get taken up into heaven that way. Right. No, and I'm glad you brought that up. It's like when um, Paul Wallace and, and Mauro talk about that scene from Exodus where Moses asks Yahweh um, to see his devote. And he's like, I'll show you my devote, but you have to clear everybody off the mountain. And when I appear in it, you can't look at it directly. You have to be behind a rock in an alcove. And then after Moses sees this thing, when he comes down from the mountain, part of his face is burned, you know, with some sort of like radiation burning. It's like, well, what the hell is going on here? We're, we're going to get all we're going to get all into the Exodus tomorrow. Don't worry. Oh, man. Oh, I'm so excited. But look, that's so cool that you, you know, um, you know, that you are open to that because, you know, I think it's just uh it's just much more interesting to look at what these people were really saying and from there, you know, as opposed to, and not just with, you know, biblical exegesis or these things kind of things, but just any source, like, you know, when I see people just say, Oh, that's just some myth from Plato. It's like, have you read it? No. Okay. Then shut the, <laughs> you know, really like, please, please. Like, 
I would never speak to you about, you know, your expertise without having at least engaged with it on some level. But it's so funny that people are so willing to just with everything tell you like, that's impossible. I've read the Bible 50 times. There's nothing about aliens. And it's like, okay, well, have you read? No, I don't want to read it. Welcome to have you on on a rebuttal episode. Like, I don't say rebuttal is a bad way, but like, no, no, no. Uh, yeah, like a follow up, a, a re, a, a re, uh, what do you want to call it? Like a, like a revisit. No, yeah, I, I would love to. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we just let us know if you ever want to, uh, if you have a free time, and we'll. I mean, we basically do this every weekend. So, wow, we can no, go ahead and do the end. Uh, we can go ahead and close out Craig here, and then I'll give him the spoiler of what absolutely. I'm going to do tomorrow. So, sure. All right, well, audience, thank you so much, Michael. Thank you for coming on. This has been a, a amazing conversation, and I can't wait to add installments to this. But remember, we don't want stuff that's normal. We want stuff that's effing weird.